All right, so for one last time, let's turn to Psalm 18. And uh, today I do not intend to read the whole psalm, but only the two sections that hold this psalm together. The way that this psalm functions is um, as follows. There is, at the beginning of this psalm, a picture, a portrait of the divine warrior who comes to deliver his king, David. And as a result of this deliverance, David then, in verses 35 through 50, subjugates or overcomes his enemies and um, obtains dominion, not only over Israel, but over the nations, and therefore is exalted. So there is the intervention of God as a divine warrior delivering David, and as a result, David has victory over his enemies. This is how this psalm is put together. This is how it functions. And in the middle of all this, you find another portrait, a portrait of the man after God's own heart. And that is that portrait that we studied last week. Today, we begin reading in verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstone and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Now verse 35. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets." You delivered me from strife, and with the people you made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart 
and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. And for this cause, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. It is mid-July now, and therefore time to gear up for Christmas. <laughs> Who among you has not seen the classic comedy, A Christmas Story? A Christmas Story is the tale of Ralphie Parker, a 10-year-old boy growing up in an Indiana town in 1940. His great passion is the kids' radio show, Little Orphan Annie. At the end of each broadcast, the narrator reads a series of letter and number combinations to decode with the help of a special decoder that can be sent in the mail upon request. And the decrypted message is supposed to be the best-kept secret in all the world. Now, little Ralphie has been waiting for his own decoder for many weeks to arrive in the mail. Now it has. So he storms upstairs and locks himself in the bathroom to let it do its magic. And as each letter of any secret message is slowly unveiled, Ralphie's thrill borders to fever. What is she asking him to do? Will she ask him to help her arrest a Nazi spy? Or perhaps be the main agent in some other top-secret mission. Finally, finally, Annie's vital intelligence is revealed. Drink more Ovaltine. <laughs> what? That's it? Even the starstruck Ralphie knows that he's been had. He has been duped. Ovaltine is the product of a commercial venture, the sponsor of Little Orphan Annie, and the entire show turns out to be the corporation's marketing tool to raise sales. It seems that any ploy will do. Well, I tell you this story because the message of Psalm 18 is not unlike the series of letters and numbers from little orphan Annie in one respect. The Psalm's language, and you have heard a good sample of it again today, the Psalm's language of vibrant images, at times even grotesque images, well, it calls for some decoding. What is God's word to us 21st century Christians? 
once the psalm has been decrypted as it was meant to be. What is the essence of its lesson that we take home today? And what is God's mission for us Christian Ralphies? With the Holy Spirit as decoder who leads us into truth, we can identify four simple truths from this psalm. And this is how we wrap up our study of Psalm 18. We must have hope, one. We must wait. We must choose. And we must fight. These four. Hope. Living life without real hope is kind of hard to do. As a matter of fact, it's bound to fail. How will you get up in the morning, being honest, if you cannot say that this is not all there is? God made us humans to have hope, to have a horizon, to have something to look forward to, like Ralphie, something bigger than the sum of the days of our petty life and our struggles on earth. From the beginning, we were meant to participate in God's grand story that extends into the future. And not only this, but extends into eternity. Eternity. No less. And it is a story that doesn't terminate with a grave. Nothing, nothing in this regard has changed. We believe in the good news. You believe in the good news. But the story isn't over until Jesus returns. And in a sense, you could say, it's actually then, when Jesus returns, that the story begins in earnest. As Lewis says, every day will be better than the one before. You can't say this of this life. We live by hope that God has given you in his Son. And in nothing else but his Son. You have no hope, no real hope, no living hope, no true hope apart from Jesus. Now, Psalm 18, as I said in previous weeks, is a royal thanksgiving psalm written by David near the end of his military career, celebrating the victory that God gave him over all his enemies. And so David wrote this psalm telescoping many deliverances, many battle experiences into a single account. But how many of us have ever seen warfare? Is there anyone here who, for example, saw action in World War II? Anyone at all? You are too young. How many of us can say, I have blood on my hands? Hopefully we can't. How many of us are sons and daughters of kings in this world? And uh, to uh, 
to narrow this even further, how many of us are actually descendants of David? If Psalm 18 is no more than a personal thanksgiving song of David, well, then you are looking at a mere literary artifact. Like visiting a museum, you can visit Psalm 18 and marvel at the individual pieces that are on display, pieces from an ancient and almost mythical past. Museum artifacts, things that are on display in museums, they are not for contemporary or daily handling and use, are they now? They're good for curiosity. Yes, and they are good for entertainment, if you wish. And they are good for education, yes? But I suppose nobody leaves a museum with an exhilarating message for daily living, glowing with hope. Psalm 18 moves in a different direction because it's not a museum artifact. Psalm 18 moves in a different direction, of course, and here's my first point. It is, Psalm 18 is intended to keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. It was ultimately written for people who live in a gap. Namely, in the gap between now and then, today and tomorrow. It was written for people who must live and walk and who are being saved by hope by hope. Think of Israel. Ancient Israel, yeah? Oh, they had David. But David didn't last. And David had God's promises. They did last. As you know, they were inscripturated, they were believed, and many people trusted in the promises of God to David. But the dynasty on which the promises of God were hung, it was broken. And Israel went into exile. And there was no king in Jerusalem, even upon their return from exile. They were ruled by foreign kings, not by their own Messiah. And when Jesus finally came, he was not the kind that they wanted nor was his kingdom the kind that they anticipated or expected. No, 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 no. The psalm's assertion of God's sovereign rule, first in the advent of this divine warrior who comes like an angry dragon in verses 7 through 15 and levels the plain, and then in the victory that God enables his king to have in verses 35 through 50, it was read, brothers and sisters, it was read by Israel for hundreds of years amid circumstances and amid powers that denied it. And we, of the 21st century AD, we do the same. 
We must read the Psalm's claim of God's universal reign through a Davidic king in the midst of many challenges. Events, feelings, facts that seem to contest God's truth. That, that go against the grain of what we profess. It is no more, I suggest to you, no more evident today than it was in Old Testament times that God truly reigns. No more. This is, therefore, a song to keep our hope alive. Hope of a final divine intervention and an intervention that results in our total salvation and in the kingdom of God as it always was meant to be. Well, this leads to our second point. And it's a logical step from here. Hope. If we have hope according to Christ's gospel, hope means that we must learn to wait. And this is a lesson that our society does not want us to learn. Wait is one of those things that, in particular in Western society, people are told they don't need to learn to wait. Paul says in Romans 8.24, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes in what they already have? Psalm 18, like Psalm 2, is eschatological. It means that you will not see it. You will not see it with your own eyes. See it fulfilled. Not in totality. Not until the end. And when Christ returns, the advent of God, here portrayed as the approach of this divine warrior from heaven who bends the heavens to come down, and the victory, the total victory of his king, they will collapse into a single event because Jesus Christ, the king, will come in the power and the glory of the Father. And he will set up his eternal kingdom and every knee will bow. But until then, you and I, we're in a waiting loop. And the last verse of our psalm, verse 50, God brings great salvation to his king and steadfast love he shows to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever is only partially fulfilled in Christ's present reign from heaven on the right hand of the Father and in his reign in our hearts by faith. It is as Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that there is a mystery, a mystery that was hidden from the ages. Nobody saw it coming that the king that was always promised to Israel who would deliver them that that king would reign in the hearts of God's people. He would be able to dwell, really dwell in the hearts of God's people. And, and Paul says, this is Colossians 1.27, he says, this is, this is Christ in us. 
Christ really in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. His reign in your heart by faith is not a metaphor. It is real. But it is a hope for the glory, glory that is yet to come. Glory that is yet to be seen and to be revealed in us. So we must wait. Wait for it. 73,000 had to wait for the lights go on on the west side of Manhattan. Eight days ago on Saturday at 7 p.m., the lights went out. There was a blackout, leaving hundreds stuck in elevators and thousands trapped and suffocating darkness in the subway system. And they had to wait for hours for help to arrive. But Christ's word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And this is precisely what Jesus taught. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Life, life expectancy has been on the rise over the last decades. Our expectations for life have also grown. Always driven by the mantra, I want this and I want that. But we, if we have any real hope, we must wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, what does it mean to wait for him? More than a century ago, the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard issued a sobering assessment of his own day and age, of his society. And it is even more potent today. Kierkegaard wrote, present-day Christendom really lives as if the situation were as follows. Christ is the great hero and benefactor who has once for all secured our salvation. And now we must merely be happy and delighted in the innocent goods of earthly life and leave the rest to him. But Christ is essentially the exemplar. That is, we are to resemble him and not merely to profit from him. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Jesus says, light has come into the world. And Jesus says, let your light shine before people so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It is how we wait for him. Not like people who sit at a bus stop, each one staring at his smartphone. But we wait for God in an active hope an active faith with works that glorify the Father. That's how we wait. Our life is lived not merely in a horizontal plane. We are children of light, children of God. And our 
words and deeds accrue to the praise and glory of God in this world because there is no one else who will do this. This is something that only God's people can do because only God's people have the testimony of Jesus and only God's people have the spirit of Jesus. But you know them. You know the high and the mighty. You know the powerful and the beautiful people of this world, the stars. You know the famous people. You know the great people, the rich people. And the adoration of heroes is no phenomenon that is locked in the past or unique to antiquity. We have our own stars. And their light does not come to us by this tremendous speed that is able to travel through space. We have our own heroes, and they come to us effortlessly through the media and countless devices. Even Christians have heroes, superstars of the Christian faith, and they wield tremendous influence, often well beyond their death. Now, their accomplishments and their contributions are not to be played down. But there are lights, there are stars that nobody knows about, but God does. I think of a nurse in North Africa who spends countless nights feeding newborn babies in an understaffed orphanage. That's the life that she lives. I think of a man who was tortured in North Korea because he helped to build a Christian church. And the church will probably never see him again. I think of young people who spent the summer working at a Bible camp and died in a tragic accident on a river. So many who are known to God because they caused praise of the Father. They show us how we must wait so there is hope because this psalm wants to inspire hope and there is therefore also the call to wait. And the third lesson from Psalm 18 is also a logical step. You must choose. You must decide. The apparent disparity between what we believe and affirm and what is reality Evil, sin, violence, injustice, hunger, destruction, warfare, death is precisely what calls us to a decision. And it is the same decision that Jesus placed in front of his hearers 2,000 years ago. Will you enter into the hidden reign of God in your life today and tomorrow and to the end where his strength is made perfect in weakness? Because the kingdom of God does not come by observation. People will not say, hey, there it is. That's it. Kingdom of God is within you. Every day, therefore, you must renew your faith, your decision to live, to walk 
in this decision. In fact, you must ask God to do so. Renew my faith. Nurture my faith. Nurture the faith of my children. And help me to have influence with this gospel. Will you trust that this God shows you the way that is perfect and that he is a reliable refuge? Well, you see, this is precisely what verse 30 in our psalm says, isn't it? This God, says David, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. And how did David know this? Well, not by crafting a world for you from the wisdom of this world, but by saying yes, yes to God's word that placed him in a heavenly narrative. And by the same token, God's word places you in a heavenly narrative that extends into the future. And it's not an uncertain one. It's the only narrative, the only promise that is guaranteed, underwritten by God's name. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace, not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope, hope. It will not be put to shame. Ralphie. Ralphie Parker lived in the world of little orphan Annie because his participation in something bigger than himself gave his life purpose and direction. And Ralphie's disappointment, on the other hand, is a metaphor of the inexorable disenchantment that we all experience when we place our eggs in something that isn't big enough, isn't strong enough to hold and to sustain hope. Living real hope. Patty McAloon says, where are your dreams? Did they all fade away? Lost in the cold light of day. Jesus calls for a decision. He calls for a choice. Follow me. Participate in my story. Participate in my reign. Participate in my kingdom. And you will find my word to prove true. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Say yes to God, for you can, through Jesus. The devil doesn't want you to know this. No more that you can say no to the devil and to the motions of the flesh. The devil does not want you to know this. Okay. Okay. If Psalm 18 is intended to keep hope alive, and if this places us in a waiting loop, and if we decide to live in that hope day by day, then what? Then you and I will find that we're in for a fight. A fight. If all of this is true, and I submit to you, of course, that it is, we're in for a fight. 
If we believe, do you, that it is finally God who is at work in this world and not the forces of hatred and greed, well, then we must fight like David does here in this vibrant imagery of verses 35 through 42. Fight! Fight like Jesus, King Jesus himself, because he fights for us and he fights with us and through us. And it will be no less a struggle than entering a physical battlefield. And like David in Psalm 18, we will need God's strength. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers over this present darkness, against evil spirits in heavenly places. Well, how do you fight those? Can't even see them. Let alone have a weapon. How do you fight? And so as in Psalm 18, with its sweeping vista of nations arrayed against David and subdued under David, the battle that God places us in has truly cosmic ramifications, cosmic dimensions. We fight on a level that the world has no clue about we fight evil spirits. At issue for you and for me is nothing less than the ultimate question. Who rules the world then? Who rules my heart? Will you fight on God's side or on the devil's side? Will you return evil for evil and fight for the devil? Or will you overcome evil with good? And fight for Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he represents and rules over. Will you wage war against your brother and sister? Or will you wage peace? For in these ways and in many more, in these ways you fight and you resist and you overcome the devil himself with the weapons and the armory that God has given you. Is God's hope alive and well within you? Because it will need to be for this. It really needs to be a living hope. It needs to be a real hope, as tangible as the hand that we can shake. Real hope. Hope that you know deep down is true and will come true. And it is so well captured in Jesus' parting words to his twelve. Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't let them be afraid. This I have said so that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Here's your hope. Is God's hope alive and well within you? Little orphan Annie gave to little Ralphie only the way that the world gives and knows how to give, ultimately to ask something in return, ultimately to take away from you and to let you down. But you are more than conquerors through Christ because hope is built on nothing less than the God-breathed conviction that inspires Psalm 18 and all of Scripture. God fulfills His purpose for the world and for all His people through His King Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins already, and the victory is certain. Psalm 18, my friend, is for you. It's your psalm. And the words of 1 John 2.13 could well be the final commentary on this piece. John says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. It's all true and will be seen because nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these encouraging words from Psalm 18, a psalm that truly encourages us to hope in the promised redemption. Redemption that comes through your King, for whom we wait, and we decide each and every day that this is how we must live and therefore, Father, we will fight. We will put on your armor to stand against the schemes of the devil. Strengthen us, for we need your strength in Jesus. Amen.